Heavenly Father, uh, we are thankful, Lord, for the gifts that you've given us in the Spirit through the body of Christ, those who come and serve us in so many ways, Father. And we're thankful that we can take what we've learned here and use it elsewhere so that we can represent you as ambassadors into the world around us. That is our call. We know that, Father. We're thankful that you've given us the opportunity to do that. I pray, Father, you'd encourage us all the more to be active and fervent in our service to you in that way. Not to keep our light under a blanket, as you say, Father, but to, but to reach the world with the gospel you've given us. Or at least, Father, to reach this part of a city in which you have placed us. And we come here on a Sunday, Father, because we know we're not equipped for that work apart from you, apart from your word, and apart from the spirit who lives in us. We can be a vessel, Father. We can be the means by which you would serve to reach others, but uh, we can't do it on our own. And so we come, Father, to be equipped. And this word you've given us this morning is the means for equipping. And it talks to people in times far away, we know, Father, but there's so much in the word that is speaking to us every time we open it that we can come with an expectation that what you have here on this page is about us. Ultimately, Father, it's about your Son, but it speaks to us about who we are, about him and his holiness, and and about us and our sin and our need for him. It was true for the day of Israel and the time of Judges. It's true for us now, Father. So I pray that what we learn from their time and their experiences that you would take and you'd implant in our hearts in a new way with new ideas for what it means for us today, ways in which we can take truth given to them and about them, and we can live according to it now. For your word is eternal, Father. It was here before the world began. It will be here after the world is gone. And so, Father, we give it its proper attention this morning. We ask for the Spirit's guidance in all that we learn. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Judges chapter 11. During the second half of the 19th century, the 1800s, life in the American West became a kind of iconic representation for our nation's independence and our rugged spirit, our self-sufficient image. And it continues today. Westerns are still popular today. Life in the West revealed that we were a people that were determined, we were rugged, and in some ways we were a bit lawless. We kind of did things our own way. The West was a frontier where laws were made by the sheriff, but they were broken by the outlaws, and sometimes it was hard to tell the difference between who was who. You had white man moving in, native tribes fighting for control of the land, and the Wild West ensued out of all of that. The final 60 years or so of the period of Judges is very comparable to the American frontier West in some ways. We've seen already in the time we've studied this how Gideon's family tried to rule by wealth and status. They were like the rancher that had all the property. They were J.R.U.ing of sorts. And then we've had outlaws like Abimelech and his band of worthless fellows who were riding into town trying to take control. Then you've had the Ammonites. Those are the natives of the land. They're fighting to displace the Israelites by raiding the camps. And you could look back now with all of that and think, well, it's kind of a time of cowboys and Indians, but there's not a lot of lawmen. Men who have the authority of God's law, who are ruling people's hearts, it's sort of a lawless time. Last week you heard about the people of Israel being under assault from two directions in chapter 10. You had on the western border the Philistines, and they were attacking from that direction. And then on the eastern border you had the Ammonites coming from the other side of the Jordan, raiding Jewish towns. We said last week the Lord has sent these two people groups to go against Israel because once again you have the nation of Israel involved in worshiping of idols, of Canaanite gods. This is the cycle we've talked about in Judges now for some time. But now the time has come in chapter 11, where we are today, for the Lord to rescue his people, which is another part of that cycle. 
There's only one thing missing from our Western movie here. We need a hero. We need someone to save the day. You might glance back a bit there to the end of 10 and verse 18. We read last week, it says, The people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the sons of Ammon? He shall become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. We need a man who fits that Western stereotype, don't we? A man who can unite the people, a man who has the grit to fight the natives. And not just any hero will do, because if the movie's going to be true to the genre, we need a hero who is a bit of an outsider himself, a man with a mysterious past. A hero who's one part sheriff, one part outlaw, one part Clint Eastwood. We need Jephthah. I had no idea that was going to happen. Go with me to chapter 11, verse 1. Look, if I can't get your attention with that, I give up. Verse 1. Now, Jephthah the Gileadite was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead was the father of Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows gathered themselves about Jephthah, and they went out with him. So here's our hero for the morning, Jephthah. He's born to a prominent family living in the region of Gilead. In fact, his father's name, if you notice, was Gilead, which would indicate he was a descendant of the originals, the original Gileads, if you will. Now, if you can picture this in your mind, it helps, or you might have a map in your Bible, but Gilead is that region directly to the east of Canaan, or what we consider Israel today, east of the Jordan River, in the area of present-day Jordan. It's sort of in the center So if you go really far south in modern-day Israel and then go east, you're looking at places that in the Bible are called Moab or Edom. If you go up to about the center of the place of Israel and go directly east, that's Ammon. And Gilead is sort of between Israel and Ammon. So Gilead is this region directly across from the Dead Sea. But on the farther east from it, you have the Ammonites, and then a little southeast of that, you have the Moabites. And the Ammonites are these people that are now coming in and attacking from that direction. They're challenging Israel for the land, both in Gilead and even over the Jordan River into the western part of Israel. But Jephthah is a member of that Gilead family. He lives over in that region. His name means he opens. And that could refer to several things, but as you're going to see in this story, this name is referring prophetically to his tendency to open his mouth too much. Specifically, he's a man who depends too much on his rhetorical wisdom. His mouth is going to get him into a lot of trouble before all this is over. He's also a man with a dark past, and this is where we fit the Western genre. In verse 1, we're told he's born to a harlot. So Jephthah's father wasn't the most faithful sort, apparently. And at some point, he had a relationship with a prostitute. And as a result of that liaison, out comes Jephthah. And as a result of that dishonorable origin, The rest of Gilead's family turn against their half-breed brother, and his brothers drive Jephthah out of the house, we're told. They claim you have no inheritance with our family since you are the son of a prostitute. And the inheritance of the family here refers to the whole land of Gilead. The Gilead land would have been parceled out to the members of that family as one generation took over from the next. But this son is going to get no part, no portion of the land. He's cut off from his inheritance. And so as a result, 
He leaves his family estate and he flees to a place called Tob, which is the Jewish frontier. This is a town northernmost in the region of Gilead. It's literally an outpost on the edge of civilization. There was nothing else there. It's a dusty one-horse town. He turns his back on his family. He rides off into the sunset. He's a man with a score to settle, but he doesn't go alone. You notice there's this band of what we hear called worthless fellows joining Jephthah on the ride out of town. And the term worthless in English isn't really quite right. The Hebrew word there means empty or idle or foolish sometimes. You can get a better sense of what it means when it says these men were idle or empty or foolish. When you consider what kind of man just up and leaves his family and his home and follows another man, a disgraced man, and rides out of town. These guys are loners. They're outcasts. They're men without much of a future themselves. So these are men for whom the prospect of adventure on the frontier was preferable to life on the farm. They were the good, the bad, and the ugly. Last time that's going to happen, I promise. So, our story begins with the people declaring that the one who can defeat the Ammonites, this is back in chapter 10, right? The one who can come in and defeat the Ammonites is going to receive Ranch Gilead as a prize. That's the offer that they make within the clan of the Gileads. Meanwhile, you have the most prominent family in the land banishing the bastard son, and I'm using that term technically, the bastard son who will ultimately return to free the town, as you can probably guess. So isn't this the making of a great western? The very one who has been denied the inheritance is the solution for the rest of them keeping their inheritance. It's also a story that builds on biblical themes, and I'm having some fun, as you can tell, with the Western thing. Well, we don't want to lose sight of what the Bible's theme is and what the Bible's teaching is concerning this event. This is consistent with what you see the Lord doing throughout Scripture, that is, raising up outcasts to lead His people. Also, let's not overlook the larger storyline of Judges, which we've looked at throughout. These are tough times in this land. These people are living with little or no understanding of the law of God, something that can be hard for us to remember. We have the Bible in front of us. We have so much we can refer to. These people have largely forgotten everything that Joshua and before him Moses had been teaching. They are a law unto themselves. They are prone to idol worship, as we've studied over and over again. This is a culture now that is living by the seat of their pants in secular ways, and God is not foremost in their mind. This is that judges cycle we've talked about so often. And that cycle is spinning, and now it's picking up speed. With each turn, we're watching the fabric of Jewish society deteriorate in a new way. The sin of Israel has always been best summarized as a time in which people were doing what was right in their own eyes, but the details of how they do that has changed over the course of the 250 years or so that we've been studying. Early in those cycles, think back now for a minute to the way this has developed. In the early period of those cycles, the tribes were refusing, for example, to push out the Canaanites from the land. That was the first sign that they were in trouble when they came into the land. Then later you saw Jewish men retreating from their roles as spiritual leaders in society, and we saw that earlier in the book of Judges. Then after that you see people taking foreign gods from the people of Canaan. Then after that you saw the leaders getting weaker, and they began to act more like despots. And their children began to act like men of, and women of privilege who own everything. And then after that, the people began to murder one another under Abimelech. And the worship of false gods began to grow, and now they're bringing gods in from the nations that surround them, not just the Canaanite gods anymore. You see how the cycle just keeps going worse and worse and worse. In between those moments, you have the Lord recovering Israel from oppressors and bringing new judges to the scene, but they don't really solve the bigger problem. 
And that downward spiral now is accelerating once again with the selection of Jephthah. The people are no longer looking to the Lord to raise up a deliverer. This is the new piece to the puzzle. Where before they would turn to the Lord and say, free us from the Ammonites or free us from the Philistines, they say to themselves now in chapter 10, who among us will free us from these oppressors? And we said at that point the Lord was willing to step in and rescue them, not because they were crying out. Remember they said they wanted something and God said, well, why don't you go to your false gods? Let them help you. Why do you come to me? Because he says, I don't want just regret, I want true repentance. Nonetheless, they do put their gods aside, and God says at some point there at the end that he can no longer bear their misery, and he's going to send them something. He's going to help them in some way. But notice what you see now in chapter 11. No mention of the Lord. As we go through this chapter, there's almost no mention of God. And I say almost because Jephthah will say something about God, but that's different than actually turning to God. But nonetheless, you don't see God here calling a specific man to judge Israel. The people aren't seeking the Lord. Instead, they call a king of their own choosing. Chapter 11, verse 4. It came about after a while that the sons of Ammon fought against Israel. When the sons of Ammon fought against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our chief that we might fight against the sons of Ammon. And then Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Do you not hate me and drive me from my father's house? So why have you come to me now when you are in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, For this reason we have now returned to you, that you may go with us and fight with the sons of Ammon and become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon and the Lord gives them up to me, will I become your head? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord is witness between us. Surely we will do as you have said. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and chief over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mitzvah. So the elders of the tribe of Gad and Gilead decide they need to call for help. I can't help but just imagine a Clint Eastwood movie about this point again. It's just so clearly comparable to this scene. They've gone back to the lost son, the banished son. It's interesting to start with just this question. What makes them think he's the solution? Why do they go to the trouble to go seeking him out? We might assume that what Jephthah has been doing all this time on the frontier has been demonstrating his skill as the kind of man who's accustomed to difficult circumstances, who's a fierce warrior, we might assume, good in battle, and that word's come back. He's the guy with the reputation that everyone's been talking about since he left. And so the elders have assumed that if we're going to do this, we're going to have to do it with the right guy. He's our guy. Let's go talk to him. Maybe he'll help us out. You might imagine the scene with Jephthah sitting on a chair on the porch of his house. He's got his uh, boots up on the top of the banister, leaning back, hat down over his face. And then you see these guys ride into town, dust following them. Band of worthless fellows that go with Jephthah are gathered at either end of the street, their hands on their holsters just waiting to see what's going to happen. And the elders come up, their hats in their hand, approaching Jephthah on the porch. And Jephthah knows he's got all the cards. He's in control here. They're the ones who drove him away. In fact, he says to them, aren't aren't you the same ones who kicked me out? Now you want me? You're in a fix, so you need a sheriff. That's basically it. And he wants something in return, which is totally valid. He wants the ranch. So let's put aside the Western motif for a second. Is this how the Lord raises up judges? Not like we've seen, right? There's been no example like this in the past. The Lord doesn't wait for a group of people within Israel to go seeking out some hero for themselves. The people are not looking 
to the Lord for a rescue. This is the inevitable result of putting distance between yourself and the Lord. Remember we said that when you feel distant from the Lord, it's not the Lord who moved. But once you create that distance, in other words, once you seek for worldly solutions and begin to put time and distance between yourself and the relationship you have with the Lord, inevitably you will begin to operate without His counsel and without the power of the Spirit working through you. Life becomes entirely fleshly when you look at the world in those eyes. Everything is earthly. Everything is secular. Everything is temporal. And therefore... When you have problems, you will seek man-made solutions. The kind of counsel you seek will be psychological rather than biblical. The kind of rescues that come to mind will be financial rather than spiritual. The kind of books you'll pick up will be the ones that have Oprah or Dr. Oz or something on the front. It won't be this one. Because our first thought is that this is an earthly problem. It's a man-made fix. I can get myself out of it. I just need man-made solutions. I just need to keep my eye on the ball. I just need to work a little harder at work. I need to just borrow a little more money. The people of Israel have lost the perspective that their trials were designed by the Lord to draw them closer to Him. Who sent the Philistines? Who sent the Ammonites? Was it not the Lord? We read that in chapter 10. But they haven't put the two together, you know, two and two together and figured out that their problem was one that God himself instituted because of a bigger issue in their life, that is their sin, and that until they addressed that with the Lord, that the problem wasn't going to be solved. It's like the Christian who feels convicted to set aside some particular sin or to clean up their life in some particular way, but they never take that essential step of strengthening their walk with the Lord. Friends, it does no good to set aside sin if you don't turn that momentum into seeking a closer relationship with the one that you're dependent on, which is the Lord. So a lot of us will get the problem of fixing the thing, but we'll forget that that's just a means to a bigger end, which is to strengthen our relationship with the Lord. I think that's why you do not hear the Lord's response here to the people. He has nothing to respond to. They haven't asked Him for anything. Instead, we just watch the people building their path of rescue bargaining, if you will, with money that isn't their own. Because they offered a Jephthah a monarchy as a payment, which God has not permitted them to offer. God didn't agree to these terms. They're making them up as they go. So, as with the selection of Saul that comes later in 1 Samuel, you have the people here demanding something that's ultimately going to lead to severe outcomes for them because this isn't what God was offering them. But, and here's something to keep in mind, the Lord is still going to rescue His people. The fact that they're doing this the wrong way will have consequences. But that in itself does not negate the reality of God's determination to rescue them. That God has a covenant that he's going to keep. He's going to be faithful, even though they are not. He's just going to make sure that even as he rescues them, the consequences of them choosing the wrong method is still going to fall back upon them. So Jephthah makes his request. I want to be your leader. The elders say, okay. And then like Abimelech earlier, the devil they know is better than the one they don't. And so if we have to choose between Jephthah ruling over us or the Amorites ruling over us, we'll take Jephthah. Now how about we fight that battle? In verse 10, look at verse 10 before we move on. Jephthah mentions the name of the Lord here. This is the first time you hear him mentioned. He says, the Lord will judge between us on this matter. And then in the next verse you hear it also mentioned that that he goes and he speaks all these words before the Lord. Look at the first one. He says, the Lord will judge between them. What he means is that the Lord is now a witness to this agreement. That's a way of invoking the Lord into this agreement so that they will hold to their bargain. In keeping with his name, he opens. You see him being a man here of words, not actions, because he speaks of God, but he doesn't seem to listen to God. 
He talks about him, he doesn't seem to talk to him. And as a result, you see a guy here who is working with the mantle of God, but not with the heart of God. And then again at the end of verse 11, we hear Jephthah spoke these words before the Lord. Take a closer look at that verse for a second. Jephthah went with the elders, they made him head and chief over them, and then he spoke these words before the Lord. Now remember what the deal was? The deal was, back up earlier in that passage, verse 9, If you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon, and, notice, and the Lord gives them up to me, will I become your head? So what was the agreement? Take me back, and if I win, then I become head of the, of the people. And the reason you'll do that is because my win will be evidence to you that God was on my side. What actually happens in verse 11? They go back, they make him chief first. Then what does he do? He goes and he, quote, speaks all these words before the Lord. Once again, he opens his mouth. His mouth is getting all the action here. The order is completely reversed. They don't actually wait to see if the Lord is with him before they raise him up to be leader. They actually say, we want you already, now go defeat them. And Jephthah simply goes before the Lord and says, hey, this has all been done. That's his chief weakness. And that's one we have to be careful to avoid too, giving lip service to God, invoking his name out of either culture or habit. But that's not enough, friends. You can't just acknowledge him and expect that to somehow result in magic things happening. He's not an incantation. He's not a genie in a bottle. And so many times in Christianity, people have come to think that the name Christ or the name Lord can be thrown out, sprinkled into our conversation, and that somehow God is bound by our use of his name to simply act according to our will. That's not the God we serve. That's not the God of Scripture. And even though sometimes he may align with our desires for his own purposes, that's not a way of affirming our method. That may just be because he wanted to go there anyway. But the reality is if we use the wrong method, we're going to see consequences. We have to seek him, expecting him to answer us with specific direction, wait for that direction, and then act on it. That's not Jephthah. Jephthah's got his own way of doing things, and the people are following him. Our study this morning is going to wrap up in this part of the chapter with the one with this open mouth, doing what he does best, talking. And we see that in chapter 11, verses 12 and onward. You have the newly crowned king of Gilead now sending this long note to his chief adversary in Ammon, trying to negotiate his way out of the battle. Verse 12. Now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the sons of Ammon, saying, What is this between you and me that you have come to me to fight against my land? The king of the sons of Ammon said to the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel took away my land when they came up from Egypt, from the Arnon as far as Jabbok and the Jordan. Therefore, return them peaceably now. But Jephthah sent messengers again to the king of the sons of Ammon. And they said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the sons of Ammon. For when they came up from Egypt, and Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea, and came to Kadesh, then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. They also sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they went through the wilderness and around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and came to the east side of the land of Moab and they camped beyond the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab for the Arnon was the border of Moab. And Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, the king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our place. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory, so Sihon gathered all his people and camped in Jahaz and fought with Israel. 
The Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated him. So Israel possessed all the land of the Amorites, the inhabitants of that country. So they possessed all the territory of the Amorites, from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok, and from the wilderness as far as the Jordan. Since now the Lord, the God of Israel, drove out the Amorites from before his people Israel, are you then to possess it? Do you not possess what Shamash, your God, gives you to possess? So whatever the Lord our God has driven out before us, we will possess it. Now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strike with Israel or did he ever fight against them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and in Arior and in its villages and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not recover that within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, but you are doing wrong by making war against me. May the Lord, the judge, judge today between the sons of Israel and the sons of Ammon. Well, this guy knows how to talk. All right, so Jephthah sends this letter. It starts with a simple letter sent by the Camel Express to the Ammonites asking, why are you trying to claim our land? The answer he gets from that first question, coming back from the king, says basically, well, because you took this land originally from us from the Ammonites. Now that statement is false. And Jephthah knows it's false, knows it's wrong. And so he sets out to explain to this king his error by recounting the entire history, basically, of Israel's time in the land since they entered under Joshua. And I'm just going to summarize this. It says, first, he reminds the, the king that when the people came up, and you can go back and read all of this yourselves in Deuteronomy and in uh, Joshua and parts, other parts of the law, that when Israel left from the mountain at Mount Sinai, they came virtually north, directly up out of present-day Saudi Arabia. And they walked up toward where they were going to cross in from the east side over to the Jordan and into the land of Israel. Standing between them and that travel were a series of other nations, Moab, Edom, the Ammonites, the Amorites. So as they came to each of these lands, each of these kingdoms, they sought permission to cross through the land. They weren't trying to take the land, they just had to walk through it. And they were denied entry time and time again by these kings. And looking back on that, we know that those denials were more than some geopolitical move. There was a true spiritual dimension to what was happening. These peoples are the spiritual enemy of God's people. God declared that they would be so, that there would be enmity between Israel and these various peoples who descend from men like Esau, like Ishmael, like the sons of Lot, who were born incestuously to his daughters after the fall of Sodom and Gomorrah, Ammon and Moab. These people groups are all the descendants of enemies of Israel, and God said, I would use these people to chastise my people. So these people are reacting negatively to Israel, not because of some political choice necessarily, but because deep-rooted spiritual reasons are running their hearts, and they're being made to, to oppose Israel in that sense. And the Lord said he would use them to chastise Israel. Later he will then use Israel to destroy these enemies. So there was no possibility, my point in all this is there was absolutely no possibility that those nations would have acted charitably toward Israel. The die was set. No more than you and I might expect the devil himself to bury the hatchet and begin worshiping the Lord Almighty. That's not going to happen. These people weren't going to find Israel acceptable. But because Israel could not enter into those lands, they had to walk a long way around, a much harder walk, to get to where they were going. They ended up going around Edom and Moab to the east, and then they had to turn almost directly west, like an S, and then come back this way and walk westward toward the Jordan River to avoid the land of Ammon. 
When the nation came to the western part of Gilead, where they are today, in the time of this story, they encountered a king called Sihon, living at Heshbon. He was the king of the Amorites. All right, keep these names straight. Ammonites, those are the ones they're fighting now. But back in the earlier day, when they came into the land, it was the Amorites that were there. When that nation opposed Israel, Israel fought them, and the Lord defeated Sihon, the Amorites, and therefore Israel took land from the Amorites. And they occupied that land, and they have occupied that land for 300 years, give or take. And Jephthah's argument, back to the king, is that first of all, this is one year land, it was the Amorite land, Sihon's land. Secondly, he says, we didn't take it by force, the Lord gave it to us, and it was recognized throughout the culture, both in Israel and in the pagan cultures around them, that when a god gave something to his people, that that was something that everyone else had to respect. That was the tradition of pagans. And so when he says the Lord gave it to us, that should have settled the argument. But then he adds a third argument. He says, the nation of Israel has been in this place for 300 years, and if this land belonged to you from the beginning, why have you not fought to regain it at any point in the previous 300 years? Why now, all of a sudden, have you decided you want this land back? And the answer to all of this is obvious, right? The Ammonites do not have a legitimate claim to this land. It was not theirs in the beginning. Why then are they just now deciding that they'd like to take it from Israel? For the same exact reason that the Moabites didn't let the nation of Israel go through their land the first time. The Ammonites are being used by God to chastise Israel. This is all coming because God sent them in. So Jephthah asks this king, and I love his optimism, foolish as he is, he asks this king to be reasonable. Won't you just be reasonable, please? Consider the facts. Do what's right. Now, what do you think of his tactic? How do you, how do you suppose an enemy king is going to respond to a lecture from his adversaries? You know, it didn't work then. It doesn't work in our political world today. This is not a strategy that's going to win. More importantly for us, it's naive. And it reflects his spiritual immaturity because he has no appreciation of what God is actually doing here. We know the Lord brought these enemies. If he had recognized that the Lord was at work bringing the Ammonites against Israel, would he have considered the chance of arguing the Ammonites out of it? Would logic have prevailed? Of course not. Jephthah has forgotten the teaching of the law that told Israel that they are the child of promise and that the child of promise will always be persecuted by the child of the bondwoman. Paul reiterates that in Galatians. The people of God, in other words, will always be opposed by the lost people of the world without exception. That's why Jesus can say, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Be ready for it. I mean, it's going to happen. And that persecution cannot, friends, this is important, that persecution cannot be ended by seeking common ground with the enemy in that sense. There is no common ground. Paul says that light and darkness have nothing in common. There's no overlap. So the attempt that Jephthah is making here to negotiate away from a battle that God has ordained is foolish and unhelpful. But it shows us that this man is working in the flesh. He's not considering what the Lord is at work doing. And as a nation, Israel has become almost entirely a secular association of states or tribes. They're like the United States of Israel at this point. A bunch of secular, independent tribes doing their own thing with almost no law of their own. But the Lord is not done with them. And he is continuing to work even though he has to raise up judges like this man who seem hardly fit for the role. Unsurprisingly, after Jephthah sends his soliloquy across with the messengers, the king is not at all impressed. Verse 28, it says, 
the king of the sons of Ammon disregarded the message with which Jephthah sent him. The word in Hebrew for disregard, it's a very simple word. It shows up all over the, the Old Testament. It means worthless, unproductive, unwise. And I think all three descriptions are appropriate in this case. Jephthah's attempt to find common ground with God's enemies was worthless, it was unproductive, and it was unwise. It was worthless because it didn't work. It had no worth. Don't think you can negotiate a peace with a world that is spiritually incapable of approving of God's people or of their values. We cannot be a proper ambassador for Christ and expect to be well received by a world that hates God and hates His Son. Now, I'm not saying that because there is this tension that our response should be to retreat from the world either. That's not the goal. The goal is to engage the world, but doing it with our eyes wide open, which is to say, knowing full well they are not going to be pleased to receive this message. Not as a group, not as a whole. Some will. Some will be touched by the word of the gospel, just like you were. Some will be taken from the the side of darkness into the side of light. That's in God's control. That's the work of the Spirit. We'll let Him do what He does. But what we should be prepared for are the ones who will respond in anger and in disregard for what we're saying in the way that this king did. That's another aspect of being an ambassador you have to be prepared for. Any attempt to negotiate around that, to seek for ways to reach the world with the gospel yet without encountering any of that opposition, if that's your goal, that is worthless. Because inevitably, you cannot find common ground without compromising your ground. And that's the second part. It's unproductive. If you seek to find commonality with the world so as to avoid the persecution result, you're not going to produce any fruit. Instead, you want to impress people with the truth of Christ, knowing their reaction may not be positive. You're hoping to win the hearts of some and move them to your side, if you will, to move them to the side of light where they can find agreement with you. Once they understand the gospel, then there'll be lots of agreement. But until then, you're wasting time if you try to make friends with the world. And then lastly, it's unwise to do what Jephthah tried to do. Because when you seek agreement, as I said, with those who do not and cannot share your values, you're taking this huge risk that our own stand in Christ is sacrificed for the sake of common ground. The common ground they want, they obtain only because they relinquish their own ground. There's no way you can bring an unbeliever to your ground. By ground, I mean to the understanding of what comes only through the Spirit. Of a a spiritual understanding of who God is and who we are and what's really going on in the world. That ground that you occupy by faith by the work of the Spirit in you, is ground they cannot even stand on. They cannot even encroach upon. So if you're looking for a common place to stand, the only choice you have is to walk onto their ground, which is to say, to adopt their values, to adopt their spiritual goals and and their priorities in life, and to live with them in that respect for a time, hoping to win them over to your place. The problem is you don't have a place anymore. And Jephthah has invited his enemy, if you will, to toast peace around the campfire, but his enemy sent no reply because his enemy understands that this is not going to gain him what he wants. There's just this war coming, and it's inevitable. And that's the way the Lord wants this encounter to proceed. The Lord is not a Lord who wants war just for the sake of war. What he wants is this people, his people, Israel, to follow his will and his command, which back in the time of Joshua was to kick these people out of the land, not to associate with them, not to seek common ground. But they haven't done that. 
And Jephthah is still trying to achieve what God himself has said must be achieved a different way. Eliminate the enemy. In the course of what we'll study next time, Jephthah, called by God and empowered by the Spirit, will eliminate the enemy of the Ammonites, but not without tremendous personal loss for the way he goes about it. And then in chapters following, we'll see Samson raised up to handle the other enemy, the Philistines on the other side. So we leave them at high noon at OK Corral, waiting for the battle to begin. No music, please. And uh, let's go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, Father, we ask that you would give us that delicate balance in our hearts that can be so difficult to maintain. That balance, Father, of love, compassion, and concern for the lost. In the same way that your Son on earth displayed in speaking to the outcasts and speaking to those who have been turned aside by society. Father, we we want that heart. And then, Father, at the same time, we want the uncompromising adherence to truth that we see in the Apostle Paul so that there would be no shifting of shadow, there'd be no uh, compromising in what we believe or how we live. Not so that we can stand above others in a haughtiness that impedes our service as an ambassador, but rather so that our light, Father, would be distinct and different, that our saltiness would never be compromised in this world. Give us that balance, Father. Humility and grace and love with resolute dependence upon your word and a commitment to the truth of who we are. Father, if your son obtained it and displayed it, then, Father, we can also have it by your spirit. So I pray, Father, for that hope in us, that we would serve you with that balance. I pray that what we hear from the story of Jephthah is useful to guiding us in that direction, that it would cause us, Father, not to lean on our own wisdom or rhetorical skill or human abilities, but, Father, that we would simply rest in you, listening for your guidance and following you in all that we do. That's who we want to be, Lord. And your word is the instrument to help us do that. I pray, Father, you would use it that way this morning. Call us back according to your will in weeks to come. Let us be better prepared still for what we have to do in this life. Call others to join us, Father. We pray for that as well. Let us grow according to your will so that we may reach an even wider audience. And, Father, give us, uh, give us patience as we wait for your son's return. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.